Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't given a shit about the show since the third season, but j- but just because I don't give a shit about it doesn't mean... It's still on. It's still on the air. It's wild. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. And you are named Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. We, we haven't recorded in a little bit, uh, and I know that over Labor Day weekend, you were cat-sitting. <laughs> yes, my wife Ashley, she was doing a little bit of a girl's trip. And so I was just home alone, and I wish I had a better story for you, but it was so fucking hot here that I literally just, like, sat around and watched movies. Like, I didn't even want to play video games. We've been going through a heat wave, and it sucks. Yeah, same here. Yeah, it's it's actually it's so irredeemably hot that... Even if I'm around air conditioning all day, which I try to surround myself with, even if I don't feel it, my body is registering it. Yeah. Because I just feel like super lethargic. I went to bed with like a uh, bad headache mm-hmm. just from like heat exhaustion or something. And probably then I woke drink up. Water. Yeah, probably. Um, I probably wasn't hydrated well enough, but I mean, I keep water around. Um, (laughs) you're just absorbing it through osmosis. Yeah. It's like the end of signs. I just have cups of water all over the house. (laughs) Uh, just in case. Yeah. It's been a hot one as Rob Thomas used to say. (laughs) Today we are talking about, uh, 3000 miles. I always get this wrong. (laughs) 3000 years Uh, of longing. And for the, uh, streaming homework, we're talking about Bone Tomahawk, which was released in 2015 and is available to watch on Tubi. 3,000 Years of Longing is still in theaters. Uh, I suppose it opened, uh, limited at first and now is wider. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. One of those kind of situations. I don't know about that. Yeah, we'll get into all of that. Before we talk about the movie, I was thinking recently about... This idea of fandom. Okay. And, you know, legacy fandoms that have existed for years, you know, in the world of sci-fi fantasy. You know, whether it be Marvel, DC, yes, obviously, the movies of in the MCU and that kind of stuff has brought in a much larger audience than before. But those fandoms have existed in some form or another since the 60s, at least. But then you have stuff like Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Doctor Who, if you were in England, existed long before that and had sort of a resurgence in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to think of, is there any fandoms post-2000 that are new that would exist alongside those previous properties? And we're not counting, you're not counting something like the MCU because those characters have existed for so long, right? Because I right. do think and there Marvel- is a little bit of a difference. 
between an MCU fan and a Marvel fan. Yes, the, I would I would agree, but the people who been watching Star Wars since 1977 would tell you that there's a difference between fans of the Mandalorian and fans of Star Wars. That's a fair point. That is a fair point. But but those yeah, both of both as franchises have existed for a right. long time. Any of these long legacy fandoms, there's always going to be those those gatekeepers and cultural divides and, you know, when different forms of media does uh, it picks it up. Does and, it necessarily have to be movies or are we throwing TV in the mix? I'm throwing TV in the mix because I think that's a big, I mean, you know, Star Trek was originally a TV show. Yeah. Doctor Who is a TV show. Because um, I would say. I have a list. I have a list. So. Okay. Uh, I, I, I want to kind of go through the list and then we can talk about each one. And I want to, I want to see these properties. We'll take them one by one. Do these properties have the legs to become legacy fandoms in the same way that Star Wars or Marvel or DC or whatever have, or are they more of a moment or a fad mm-hmm. or a flash in the pan or a zeitgeist? Gotcha. Okay. Um, All right. So, so I jotted a few down and if there's any that I'm forgetting when we get to the end of my list, um, because I'm not as plugged into t- to TV as you are, yeah, there's uh, there are a couple that immediately pop to mind. So, um sure. Uh yeah, if you don't mention those then I'll I'll definitely bring them up. Now, I'm thinking of things kind of in terms of post 2000, but there are some of these that will maybe have like a starting point in the 90s but really didn't coalesce until the 2000s. I think this one's easy. Um, but I'd like to hear what you have to say. Okay. Harry Potter. <sighs> Ugh, okay. But th- that one's complicated. Uh, a little bit. It's g- Every day it gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, yeah. I, you know, even five years ago, I would have said, of course, Slam Dunk has the legs. It is, you know, one of the modern fandoms of our time. And I think that's generally true, but mm-hmm. every fucking J.K. Rowling tweet, it does dilute the brand. It is getting harder and harder to separate, you know, Harry Potter from transphobia. It, it, it That's the problem is, is it is becoming like, a, oh, you're a Harry Potter fan? Well, that must mean you're transphobic. And it's like, okay. You, you I know, think uh, uh, I think it's putting maybe... I think it's putting a few more people back in the closet as far as that goes. Not to no, I, I agree. Con- confuse and, and that's, that term. That, no, that that's but. what I'm talking about. Like solely as a fandom, it is harder to it is harder to admit. It is getting to the point where it's, you don't want to admit you're a Harry Potter fan because of those negative associations. But I, I mean, here's the thing, though. It's still huge. People still talk about, are you a Gryffindor or a Slytherin? Sure. It is, and, and you know, it is one of the only fandoms that I have on this list that and that I can think of that has its own uh, theme park 
you know, exclusively devoted to it. I mean, it, yes, it's part of Universal, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's like a whole wing of Universal. It's well, not just a ride. Yeah, and and they have multiple, you know, multiple parks even. It's not even just one. It's, you know, there's yeah. the California and the and fact that the Orlando. The fact that uh, Joanne has become such a heinous person Ugh. over the last, like, five years or so. What the um, fuck? She's just like doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. Did you did you hear about her book, her new book? I mean, there's been several. No, yes, I've heard about her most recent one. Yeah, her most recent one under her fifteen hundred page screed against cancel culture. Her, her, (laughs) yes, her fifteen hundred page screed against cancel culture that she wrote under her pen name as a man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like what the fuck. But here's the thing, even as that exists, and all of these different communities who found some sort of um, solace in the fandom of Harry Potter. Sure. Now, I've always considered myself just like a little too old for that generation. Like, I mean, I was there. I, you know, I remember Harry Potter getting big. But while Harry Potter was getting big with the people just under our age... That's when Lord of the Rings was coming sure. out, oh, and but, that was oh, okay. more what I was excited no, no, no. about. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna simplify this. Are you a fan? Are you a fan of the of the movies? Yeah, they're fine. But that's the thing. Fuck you. Is I don't I don't think of the movies as being like these. The line I always tell people, and I don't mean this dis- dismissively, of although I think that's how people will take it. It's just not my Star Wars. Okay, let me put it to you this way do you know what hogwarts house you would be in i mean i took the myspace quiz or whatever a long time ago no okay what house are you in um it said that i was a uh uh fuck now i can't think a ravenclaw i see i was going to say i if i had to guess i would guess either ravenclaw or hufflepuff um, Ravenclaw makes a lot of sense to me, though, because you you are very studious about things that you care about, uh, such as pop culture knowledge, such as music, uh, uh, and you're very smart when it comes to that. So that that makes sense to me. But just the fact that we have gotten this far into that as a conversation, I'm going to say you're a mm-hmm. fan. Fuck your gatekeepy. You are gatekeeping okay. yourself, and it is a form of gatekeeping. I don't think that you need to be a hardcore, <laughs> know every name of every fucking goblin uh, uh, right. kind of fan to declare yourself a fan of something. And setting those lines is a form mm-hmm. of gatekeeping, saying, oh, well, I'm not fan enough. You know what fucking Hogwarts house you're in. You're a fan. Okay. If if that's if that's the the line you're drawing in the sand, then sure. I'm what I mean. It by is that. because I think so many people cut themselves off from stuff that they might think is cool because they're like, I don't know the fucking sixty year history of this thing, or I no, don't. No, 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 no. I know, and there's. There, I've. I, know, I'm saying a um, casual fan is still a fan. I've talked to people who've who've seen every single Marvel movie. 
And I'm like, hey, you know, let me give you this comic or that comic. And they're like, I don't know if I can jump into the comics. I'm like, you literally know way more than I did when I started. <laughs> you, you, you know yes. pretty much you everything. You know more than know. the writers who wrote the comic at the time, probably. Yeah, like you have more than a head start to jump in basically anywhere. But, but that's my point is I think. When it comes I mean, to when it comes when it comes to Harry thing. Potter, I read two and a half of the books. Um, I you know I felt the Potter mania around the time that like Deathly Hollows came out and all of that stuff. It was hard not to. You know uh, what a horror is kind of more of a. I know what a horror crux is. I've seen all the movies. Do I have to see them again? That's for most of them. That's kind of a no. And even before. The downfall of Joanne Rowling, I, uh, I, you know, could <laughs> like be fairly critical of of the of a lot of it. A lot of it is pretty derivative. A lot of it, she loves her ex machinas in basically every single fucking. Sure, 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 sure. I have I, to I'm roll not, my eyes at. I'm I'm not analyzing the works of Rowling. I'm I, I again. These are all. I think we've settled this. This is, in fact, a legacy fandom. I, I think she can still fuck it up, but I, I think yes, it, it most likely is. Yes, and I think in today's age, in twenty twenty or twenty twenty two, it is a lot harder to separate the art from the artist, especially when that artist is still alive and a public figure. It, okay. You know what I mean, like. So I think what we're saying is that Harry Potter is presumably a legacy fandom with an asterisk. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But I think, th I think the franchise exists beyond her at this point. And I'm sure people have already rewrote all the shit they hate and whatever. Yeah. I um, mean, if she continues to take up so much of the conversation with her bad opinions that the you know the books are the books they're done so it's hard to be like well this new harry potter thing i'm excited for despite jk rowling it, it all exists nobody's a fan of the fantastic beasts movies you know so it's just if they were smart they would just buy all of the rights from her and and separate the brand as much from her as possible, because if she continues to profit from it, you know what I mean? Like it's harder to ignore that. Okay. Okay. Well, I got a lot of these, so let's be quicker. Okay. Um, <laughs> the matrix. I think it's done. I, I yeah. think the, the movies are what we're going to get. I think if anything, the Matrix has always had a hard time, I think, kind of doing any kind of spin-off thing. Like, there was the Animatrix, which some people were pretty into. You know, it's cool. It's fun. Uh, there was the Matrix Online, like, video game. But it hasn't really recaptured any of the success from the original the original movie, really. Uh mm -hmm. And if anything, I think this newest movie proves that there's just kind of not much left there. I feel like the story is what it is, and it's kind of done. Yeah, I feel like I would I would uh, 
classify that one as more of a zeitgeist, more of a moment. Yeah, and and there was I, a I, fandom there, and I think that. But it, I think it's it, based more on nostalgia at this point than anything else. Like you know, the 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 yeah. new movie sold itself on the name, but. I don't think it inspired a new generation of fans. And to be a true fandom, you need to be able to consistently do that. Right. I don't see a lot of, of like, Gen Y types yeah, um, who are super into it. So that one's a little easier. How about this one? Twilight. Oh, Dead in the Water. That one's done. Dunzo. It, it, it was definitely <laughs> a zeitgeisty... You know, of the moment, it was the biggest fucking thing in the world, but it's done. Like, nobody's talking about Twilight. Nobody's trying to franchise Twilight. There's no talks of sequels. It's just, it's done. Yeah, I mean, this would if they were going to go in for more sequels or maybe do a reboot or a TV series, now would be the time to do that. Um, I don't think so. I I don't... uh, Robert Pattinson. I feel like that fan base has pretty much moved on. Yeah, I think it's just, e- even at the time, a lot of that fandom was bleed off of, like, Harry Potter fandom and, and mm-hmm. kind of the YA craze of the early 2000s. I think it's pretty much just, it is what it is, and it's, yeah. But you think s- about all of those, like, uh... Like Vampire Diaries and and there was all those kind of like Twilight knockoffs that came out around the same time. Sure, yeah, it was it was weird how big it was and how big it's not now. Well, I just don't think it had any legs beyond that. You know, it, it yeah. was such a. It, you know it what was, it is? I think that every ten, fifteen years, uh-huh. um. There's a new vampire craze. Like vampire fandom is kind of an umbrella fandom that breeds a new gen, a new generation, but yeah. it comes in different forms. Yeah, maybe. And there, and there's just hasn't been like the one vampire as folklore has existed long enough that it's it's impossible to have like that one defining sort of vampire story. I think probably the closest we got to like a real vampire fandom was probably Anne Rice. Um, right. And they are starting like an interview with the vampire TV series, I think. Yeah. And, and I mean, um, there are enough novels there that I, I think if it yeah. does well, then, then potentially there's something there. But part of the problem with twilight is it made up so much bullshit lore and wasn't, necessarily true enough to the vampire lore that it was so it it was kind of so obviously catering to this young adult crowd to this very specific market of of girls at a certain time in their life and the you know those people are grown up now they're adults now so it just isn't gonna hit the same it was romance novel training wheels yeah and it's only gonna kind of hit the the nostalgia uh button where versus uh, something that can kind of live and breathe beyond that okay yeah i would agree um this one i think i know your answer on and i'm pretty much uh just gonna go off what you're saying because it's not a fandom that i'm a part of but game of thrones is it too early to say (sighs) 
Oof. Yeah, this one's tricky. This one's tricky because the last season. Where will the where will the GOT fans be in ten years? Well, okay, if we're if we're getting technical, the the GOT fans existed a long time before the show, but sure, uh, the books, yeah, yeah, which there was a rabid fan base before the show. Uh, because you would hear about it during the show, but it, it obviously did not light up the pop culture world until the show. Right. Uh, it is now thing. a presence well, at any convention you go to. Well, that that's the that's the thing I'm uh, talking about. Is it? I, I think a lot of it hinges on how well House of the Dragon does. And so far, it's doing pretty well. It's uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've watched the first couple episodes. It feels like Game of Thrones. The, the, the last season of Game of Thrones proper was so bad that it kind of obliterated it from the pop culture conversation. It just... Uh, yeah, people I, were mad. Well, I, I saw somebody tweet... And I uh, something, and I, I'm paraphrasing badly, and unfortunately, I don't remember who tweeted it, so I can't credit it. But it was something along along the lines of, uh, you know, during the pandemic, you're hearing a lot of people going back and rewatching all the Star Wars movies, rewatching all the Harry Potter movies, you know, doing all this stuff with the downtime while they're on lockdown, and you don't hear about anybody going back to Game of Thrones. Which is one of the biggest pop culture fumbles of all time. And I agree. I think it's that last season was so, it was so counter to everything the rest of the show was. Uh, you know, season seven had some issues as well, but that last season where it just felt like the, the showrunners gave up on it because they had this fucking promise of a Star Wars franchise. They were working on this other show for HBO. You could tell they just didn't give a shit anymore. And it it just translated so fully that if the fucking showrunners can't give a shit, why would any audience give a shit? It, It was so obvious. Now, House of the Dragon is interesting. It's it's a kind of a conundrum because it's something like 200 years previous it's a prequel Mm -hmm. but it's not a direct prequel the way that you know like the star wars prequels which sort of started the whole prequel as a fad thing um so, so it's it's not a direct prequel but it has all the stuff that you liked from game of thrones it has all the intrigue it has all the the drama it has the dragons it has the high fantasy as political intrigue and so i think the, i think it kind of depends on what they're going to do with this show to see if it can exist as a thing beyond that original series and sure. so far i think for the most part it's succeeding uh but so let's say let's say just for the sake of argument Mm-hmm. Or the sake of speculation, yeah. That you know, Game of Thrones is what it is. People love the first five seasons. People don't love the last one or two. 
And maybe it lost a certain amount of fan base just off that alone who wouldn't even bother with House of the Dragon. I don't know if that's the case, but it seems like maybe it is. Let's say House of the Dragon stays steady. Yeah. You know, at where it's at right now. People are watching it. People are talking about it. Maybe some of the... Are there there any characters in House of the Dragon that people are definitely going to be cosplaying? Yeah. Oh, there were were characters that I saw people cosplayed at Comic-Con in July before the show had even come out. So so yes, definitely. There are there are definitely those characters. Uh there's this fucking badass motherfucker named the Crab Feeder, uh mm-hmm. who has like this iconic mask already. There's there's okay. the the sea snake. There's there are already I think characters that that again capture that excitement of the original Game of Thrones. I so think- maybe in the case of Game of Thrones, we have a fandom that's a little bit closer to like the Star Trek fandom where, you know, we like this season, this series until this point, then we kind of pick it up again at this series. And then, but other, there's some people you know who what? really that's like this good, other one. That's a good point. That is a good point. And I think it definitely has the potential to be that. I think... Mm-hmm. I think the ultimate question is, can it as a franchise exist outside of the main story and exist after George R.R. R. Martin dies? Right? Because sure. the first the first series was tied so closely to these books. Uh even House of the Dragon, right, is based on a book that George R.R. R. Martin wrote. Now, something like Star Wars is is trying to find is currently trying to find this existence post George Lucas. So the I think the ultimate question is, is it something that can outlive the the original author's story intent? And mm-hmm. I think Game of Thrones has the potential for that because the world is so rich. But I don't necessarily think it's earned it yet. And I think even after House of the Dragon, they got to get some other kind of spinoff that still works within this world that isn't based on a book. Yeah. So is, is that a uh, a yes with an asterisk? Yeah, I'll say it's a, a yes asterisk. Because I, I think it can. I'm saying that mostly based off the critical success of the spinoff. So far, people have been very into House of the Dragon. It's been getting great reviews. Uh, it has been breaking all sorts of viewing records for streaming. Whereas the Fantastic Beast spinoff franchise, you know, spinning off of the core text, uh, is definitely a case of diminishing returns. Each movie seems to be performing worse than the previous Mm -hmm. uh there's been no critical acclaim you know so to me harry potter is a franchise in decline whereas game of thrones house of the dragon has at least been consistent with the success of the original series yeah i understand what you're saying i i think that the main difference between the two franchises is the fact that Harry Potter has a broader audience uh, just for the fact that it's not explicit material that's exclusively on one 
yeah, TV network. That's true. Um, but the the thing is, all those all those Harry Potter fans grew up to become Game of Thrones fans. Sure, but the thing is, Harry Potter is still gaining new fans. Parents is are still it? reading it to their kids. Yeah, for sure. Go to Harry okay. Potter World in in uh, fucking sure sure. Uni- well, I am Orlando sure or whatever. You're still going to see a bunch of kids dressed up and all that stuff. I am sure that House of the Dragon has definitely sold more than a few copies of Fire and Blood. Oh yeah, but I mean, uh, I just maybe it's apples I, and oranges. I, other than the fact that it, they're both fantasy, but I if see I were betting more- money, if I were betting money on it, that twenty years from now, what fandom is still going to survive, and knowing oh, that one right. of them will not, mm-hmm. I would put my money on Harry Potter over. Game of Thrones. I mean, they, yeah, they just it really, looking they at really it objectively are very different as two pop culture phenomenons. I I currently think that Game of Thrones has more potential, mm-hmm. but I don't disagree with you because you know Harry Potter is essentially children's books. There, you know, yeah, because pe- people can pass them down generation to generation. It is. A little harder to do that with Game of Thrones. Right. And those seven uh, books exist on their own. And they're done. And they're, they're contained. They're done. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the the Game of Thrones, the books still haven't even finished. So that's a part of it as well. Okay. Um, I had Hunger Games on here, but I think you could basically say the same thing we said about Twilight. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I will say that the one difference is uh, there is at least a prequel in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there there is there was the prequel book. Uh, it's like the Ballad of Snakes and so- the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes or something. And they are like working on a prequel movie or, or something. So I feel like it's trying to build a, a fan base beyond the original source material but i i think it has a little more potential than twilight at this point but uh, yeah i i think it's kind of in that same ballpark it feels yeah. a little more flash in the pan to me yeah yeah um this last category i have here i have a bunch of different titles uh that i just want to okay, look so at together rap speed round yeah sort of a speed round um, if any of these stand out to you, you can talk more about it. But the alt sitcom phenomena of the 2000s. And under this, uh, I have The Office, Community, Arrested Development, Rick and Morty, Bob's Burgers. Okay. Well, first of all, Rick, I feel like Rick and Morty and Bob's Burgers should be separate because I think adult animation is kind of a category of itself. Uh Sure. And and Rick and Morty was specifically one of the first ones that popped into my mind uh, when you brought up this whole conversation. I think it's a little bit different than the alt sitcoms. I, I mean, I think, you know, if we're talking about stuff like The Office and Community and Parks and Rec, like, I feel like, you know, all those shows are kind of done. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of the same category as like Seinfeld or friends, like the people who watched it will continue to watch it as comfort food. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I don't I don't think there's much beyond that. I'll say this of most specifically the office and I'm speaking mostly about the American version of it. Yeah, yeah. Um cuz there's just more of it obviously. But I think that that show has existed in the world of memes. Yeah. In a way that other sitcoms don't. Like there is there's a well Say the same thing about SpongeBob, maybe, but there yeah, is a. I, th- I think it's very similar to SpongeBob in that there is a yeah. meme, an office meme, for every situation. Yeah, but I don't or get or whatever. I'm not going to count a, a meme towards something's pop culture success because a meme can be taken out of context. A, a meme does not. A meme is not dependent on you understanding anything about it as a fandom so yeah so i think that it might keep the franchise alive but i i think even that is a little different than a fandom i i think the fans are the fans kind of people still say things like oh that person's totally a dwight or oh it's a pam and tom or pam and jim situation or uh i mean those kind of i think that's different than a fandom so I'm going to say, I feel like all these shows are kind of what they are. You know, there, there's, there will probably be an office reunion special at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but will that reignite it? You know, I don't, I don't think so. If it, I feel like if they tried an office spinoff or, you know, an office, the new generation, it, it would fail. Well, that's kind of what Parks and Rec was, or at least started out as. And there's but not really, arguably it, it, a more rabid Parks and Rec fan base now than there was for The Office. But but the thing is, Parks and Rec wasn't a spinoff. It was just a, it was a different show with the same formula, and that's a right. different thing. So I think I think they're kind of done. You know, like Frasier was a spinoff to Cheers because Frasier was a character from Cheers. There has yeah. not been a Dwight show. There hasn't been a uh, Pam and Jim show, which I'm kind of surprised about. But I think, in, I and I think it's kind of too late for for a, a successful spinoff. I feel like at this point, it's kind of like Joey. You know, like nobody would really care as much. And I, I yeah. think they're just kind of they are what they are. I I don't know that they're flash in the pan <clears throat> though. I just. I don't think they're going to grow beyond what they are now. It's just not the same type of fandom. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. I just wondered, I would argue that that they, um, you know, sitcoms in general, it's a very specific, different kind of fandom. Um, yeah. I mean, you could... Which is... Certainly things like Bob's Burgers and Rick and Morty have a crossover fan base with the, like, sci-fi fantasy world. Well, and that's why I want to separate those, right? Because to me, Bob's Burgers is closer to, like, The Simpsons at this point. Right, which is definitely a very real and long-lasting legacy fandom. Absolutely. Uh, uh, So I I think, you know, Bob's Burgers has been on the air for so long, and there's so much lore and and world-building that went into that show that I think it does kind of... I think that has more legs. And and I think that's why 
Uh, and same with Rick and Morty. The fucking lore of Rick and Morty is so complicated. And you can say something like Rick and Morty fans and people know exactly what you're talking about if you just if you just say Rick and Morty fans. Right. That is such a, a specific category. I, I, and I think uh, animation has that ability to sort of outlast like a sitcom, right? Because it doesn't like the office date in the same way. Well, the, I think it's because the office, right? Is if you thought of like an iconic character, you're going to think of a, a Michael Scott, or you're going to think of Dwight who are tied to a specific actor. Whereas Bob's burgers and Rick and Morty are more, they're more iconic because it's animation. It's, 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 just literal iconography. You know, the, the, it is a logo that is dancing and moving and talking. And mm-hmm. if if the, you know, God forbid once uh, John H. Benjamin, you know, if he passed, somebody else could do the voice of Bob. It might be a little different, but it could exist beyond any specific actor is the, is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced that either are, uh, legacy fandoms or even will be, but I, I disagree based, I mean, based on, you know, like, uh, uh, Bob's Burgers has a dedicated booth at Comic-Con that, that, you know, the office doesn't, they, they were, it's what, 15 years into this show and there Mm -hmm. was, they have their own booth. They were giving away free burgers at this own pop-up they had. You know, the mm. office isn't going to spend that kind of money on marketing. And I guess my point is Bob's Burgers doesn't have to. They do that stuff for the fans. No, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it is – let's say this, uh, specifically for those two shows. Let's say this year ends up being their last year on television. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason. Yeah. At this point, do either of those shows pick up new generations of fans afterward? I think both of them do. There's there's so much Bob's Burgers, first of all. And mm-hmm. Rick and Morty has successfully spun off into comic books, into board games, into video games, into other mediums. So I, I think there is enough content there that absolutely they could still pick up new fans okay yeah i mean i'm not as familiar with either i've watched a decent amount of bob's burgers like i've watched i don't know probably 25 or so episodes of the show sure. a smattering across that, their the seasons and i enjoy the a- show but to me i've never like it's never been I must see every minute of this show kind of television. That I just like a, it when I watch it. Sure. And it w- truth be told, I've never like really clicked with Rick and Morty. Sure. But, but just because you don't identify with the fandom doesn't mean the fandom doesn't exist. I, I no, think I for know. Bob's Burgers, just look at the fact that they're 15 seasons in and they just got a movie. Right, right. Yeah. Like there, it's still growing. The the creators have a spinoff show with the Great North, which I guess isn't a spinoff based off my earlier definition of a spinoff with Parks and Rec and The Office. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it's a it's spinoff same- like like Futurama is a spinoff of The Simpsons. Yeah, it's it's a it's a spiritual spinoff, but it's none of the same characters or whatever. Like if if there was a crossover episode, no one would blink an eye. Um, but that so to me that is a sign that like it is still growing. Mm-hmm. You know, it got a movie, it got a theatrical release, an animated movie that's not Disney getting a theatrical release. It's two D animation, like. That's kind of actually a big deal. Uh, yeah. And and again, I think Rick and Morty has successfully spun off into other mediums, such as comics and games and stuff. So, so yeah, I think both of those have a little more legs than your average sitcom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that Rick and Morty kind of was able to spin off into those other mediums because it's like a snake eating its own tail because it exists because of those mediums in the first place. Yeah, but, and it's it, it's commenting on them and it's, you, you know, but but because of that, it can always, it can kind of keep adapting to whatever, you, you know what I mean, whatever sort of new stuff comes out. Like, you just have to point out the tropes of it and throw those two characters in it and it works. Yeah. Okay, um, before we move on to the main review of the week, is there any that I egregiously overlooked? Uh, Like I said, Rick and Morty was the first one to pop into my mind. And I can't... Oh, I think Game of Thrones was the the other one. So I I think... I'm trying to think of, you know, what I see at Comic-Con all the time. Um... I, I have got one that is very egregious. Okay. Uh, the Walking Dead. Oh, fuck. I so don't care about that that I forgot it existed. But that's that's not fair just because no, you're I not know. a fan I of know. It. Yeah, I know people. There are still Walking Dead podcasts that the Talking yeah, there's, Dead. There's like 15, you know, uh, deluxe volumes. There it. It has two yeah. spinoff series still. Mm-hmm. It had a, a post-show show. It was the first post-show. I always Chris forget Hardwick, how popular like, the show is until somebody calls John Bernthal. Um, what was his character in the show? Shane. Shane, yeah. When they address him first as Shane from The Walking Dead, I'm like, oh, that's your go-to? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I get, but I totally get it. I just... I mean, yeah, I just po- never. Lo- it was a- I just never loved that show. But it, you are totally right. That show yeah, I mean, it, it massively was, popular. And Hall H, you know, it was like, ooh, Game of Thrones. Uh, and then we have to sit through the Walking Dead panel because, mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't given a shit about the show since the third season. But ju- but just because I don't give a shit about it doesn't mean it's still on. It's still on the air. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Say, I, I, would I, mean, I would actually even above some of these others that we've been having a bit more of a back and forth with. Even though I'm so emotionally detached from it, I would actually say it's probably more of a solid new fandom than most of what we talked about. It seems to have legs. Like I said, there's two spinoffs. Yeah, two. So you I know, liked even, the comic when it first came out. I mean, the comic. I yeah. The, there was there's a. <laughs> There is a specific incident that is, I think, kind of a wall for a lot of the comic readers. Uh, it's kind of where I stopped reading. 
and I don't I don't want to say it because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't read it. Um, but it's like you get to this point and you're just kind of like, I'm done. This <laughs> is just too ugly. This is too mean. There's just nothing. There's nothing to hold on to anymore. And and anybody who has read it, and I think even a lot of like the original fans of the show dropped yeah. off at this point in the show. Um, and I'm sure there'll anybody- be people who are listening who are like, uh, what about, you know. Oh, for fandoms? Yeah, for fandoms. There's going to be a bunch of people who have other things in mind. Like, I know there's probably a lot of people who are thinking Breaking Bad. But to me, Breaking Bad is like The Sopranos. Like, it's, well, I, it's I kind of put prestige television in a different category. Sure. Yeah, I I do think there is kind of a new crop right now that is too... Because you could say Mad Men, too, you could say, you know, uh, I don't know, there's Six Feet Under, whatever. Like, there's a lot of um, shows that have existed that were critically lauded and, you know, had their I I would say uh, another big one actually two two more i'm gonna say i'm gonna i'm gonna mention two more uh one is supernatural mm. which you know has has supernatural conventions like outside of just comic-con and even though the show ended uh it still has they're working on a prequel spinoff uh uh so i i think I think there might be an argument to be made there. And the other one is the same showrunner uh, as the original Supernatural, uh, but the the boys, I think. But I, I think the boys is a little, it's a little still new. a little too new. Yeah. It, but I know they're working on a spinoff. And again, just kind of the world they've created definitely has the potential. So, yeah, people I think are pumped co- about it. And I mean, same could be said for the uh, there's a lot of like burgeoning things coming out of comics and books and stuff that are just getting off the ground now. You know, uh, the first season of Invincible has it picked up a lot of fans. You know, there's certain things that are kind of we'll sure, see other sure. kind of seedlings at this point. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I think, the boys. I'm surprised how popular it is, and then not surprised at the same time. I think it it has potential. I think it has potential to be a fr- sort of franchised beyond what it is right now. So I I think yeah, there yeah, and I think it has a lot of bleed over fans from Supernatural because it, you know they're both originally by Eric Kripke uh, and. Jensen Ackles just had a crossover. Uh, Jeff, I, I think Jeffrey D. Morgan is going to be in the new season. So there's a lot of like crossover actors. Mm. So to me, that's almost like the Kripke verse is almost kind of its own thing. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, 3,000 Years of Longing, which is almost as long as that segment. Uh, it, I enjoyed it. And I think the listeners did the, too. The, don't. Yes, the people uh, who always who want us to talk more about television will love that last hour of content. But absolutely, go ahead and describe to me the plot of Three Thousand Years of Longing. Okay, so Tilda Swinton plays this scholarly character named Alethea, who is a scholar of stories, essentially. She's an academic of literature. 
um, who has this well-established life of touring and lecturing and, and writing books about, you know, analyzing literature and things like that, um, well-respected in her field. And she is in, I believe it's Istanbul, giving a, a scholarly lecture. And she picks up this glass bottle as a memento. Uh, she takes it back to her hotel room. And as she is cleaning it, accidentally pops the lid. And a, a genie comes out of this bottle, played by Idris Elba. And the djinn, as it is referred to in the movie, is trying to convince her, a, a person who has studied stories, that it is not a trap but to please make her three wishes so that he can be free finally um, from his imprisonment. So he, he tells her these stories about how he has been captured previously in an effort to try and convince her to, to use these wishes to gain his freedom. Um, and, yeah, that's that's kind of the core of the movie is is him telling it, it's almost an anthology movie, uh, yeah. In that it has these different story mechanisms within the framing device. Yeah, I would say that it's it's definitely related to the anthology uh, as a type of. I mean, it's even broken up into chapters, um, mm -hmm. like a book. And as he talks about each different owner or master he had you know it changes the setting it changes the time period and uh this, we what well, it it changes the way it's filmed it changes just like the visual language of the movie right and i think we mentioned before this is directed by written and directed or adapted and directed by george miller the australian director most known for having done um, the Happy Feet films and <laughs> yes. and this little franchise, Mad Max, and Witches of Eastwick, and, and a bunch of other things. Uh, for 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 those who think he's just the Mad Max guy, take a look at his IMDb because that's a journey. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I you know you know it's not as crazy as you think. It's, no, it, you know he's got a couple kids movies. He's got Happy Feet. He's got Babe Big in this. Yeah, Babe Big in the City. Yeah, but uh, it's, he's a it's workman. Not as crazy he's as. a workman director. You know, there was a lot of them back in the day. You know, who were not as interested in being an auteur as they were in just staying busy and you know staying in uh, making in, movies in the business and you know yeah making movies. And he's he's always brought a certain level of professionalism, and he comes at the genre with what it needs. And I think that he's, in a way, he's been able to have, with the Mad Max franchise, been able to return to it every now and then with these new tricks he's picked up along the way, and it informs the look and style of those movies um, as he you know, grows it's as a visual director. I'm, I'm looking at his filmography, and it's not as big as I maybe thought it was you know the the mad max franchise definitely is the bulk of the stuff he was is kind of putting out but um mm -hmm. but yeah exactly as he is as a at least as a visual director he has been able to 
sort of adapt and and learn and grow in ways that some of his contemporaries, I think, maybe struggled with. Yeah, and you know, there's an argument to be made that that perhaps there are there's directors, you know, like Michael Apted or or Bill Condon, um, these kind of professional workman directors who uh who actually have arguably more skill in that they can they're more chameleonic in their style and can sort of do it all as opposed mm-hmm. to like a Tarantino or a, or a, a Christopher Nolan or an M Night Shyamalan who can really only or really only bothered to make the movies the way they make movies and there's yeah. you know that conversation to be had about like is the idea of auteur theory been a detriment overall to the world of cinema, especially when it's such a collaborative medium anyway. But mm-hmm. we're kind of going off on one. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, uh, I saw a few trailers for this before going to see it and I knew that it had like a fantasy element, uh, maybe a, a, a fantastic realist element to it. Um, and I was interested in that, uh, Really good cast, obviously. Um, they're throwing George Miller's name all around it now because of the success of Fury Road. And it's, it's you know, it's kind of getting mixed to positive reviews. And I, I see why, but... I do, too. <laughs> and my my review of it is also mixed. Yes, my overall take with it is I think the first two thirds of the movie are fantastic. I really love the anthology, especially, you know, when they're in that hotel room, they're going over mm-hmm. these different stories, um, you know, these big elaborate set pieces, uh, the, you know, the costume drama aspects of it. I think the, the mix of, of fantasy and, like historical costume drama and you know sort of like the big hollywood productiony quality of a lot of it mixed with the somewhat naturalistic almost indie feel of the framing device mm-hmm. I, I think is all handled and and uh dealt with very very well um there's a lot of skill in the filmmaking um, especially his use of the camera, the 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 way that shots. Um, oh, a, it is a feast for the eyes. It is yeah, absolutely beautiful. But I mean, the, even even just the way he, uh, you know, deliberate camera movement. Mm-hmm. You know, as a as opposed to doing things in montage editing or whatever, or or uh, traditional coverage. And we talked a, a little bit about this when we talked about Beast, uh, the last episode we did with Idris Elba. That was used specifically more for intensity and horror. Here it's used more in kind of um, almost like in an invisible way. You don't you you don't realize that he's using fewer cuts because he's so good at it. Yeah, um, that it yeah. just becomes part of the language of the film. Um, well, it, I... it has this this kind of voyeuristic quality, which mm-hmm. especially for, you know, sort of these stories that, that are being told, it makes a lot of sense because in a lot of these stories, the, the djinn, 
kind of becomes this voyeur because, you know, he can only sort of speak to his master or uh, the person, you know, that, that he has the, the connection with. And sure. it is a very, it has a very intimate quality to it while still managing to have these like big fantasy sort of moments. It's, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. It's really well done. Yeah. The problem is, this movie doesn't really have an ending. <laughs> no, and that's my issue. My issue with the movie is the third act when if I feel like the first two thirds were so intentional. And I know this is based on a short story. And I wonder if that third act is part of the short story or if it's stapled on as a way mm-hmm. to expand this. I can't say because I have not read it. But it almost feels that way because the first two thirds really feels intentional and really feels of a piece. And then the last third, when they leave that hotel room and, you know, it kind of becomes more of a romance, doesn't feel earned, doesn't feel. Oh, not at all. It, it, especially for everything they had established of the character and the themes of the movies. Right. And and just the nature of a, a Jin story, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, 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 most people would probably understand from like Aladdin, you know, sure. where it's, it's this. The Jin story is, is sort of, you know, this like fantastical servant story who. Ultimately, you know, you end up befriending or loving or whatever and, and wanting to give them free, set them free and give them agency. And mm-hmm. the way this movie ends sort of portrays all of that. And it wraps everything up in the last 20 minutes of stuff that had not been established or earned at all. It, it is right. It one of like- the most. It feels like it's it feels like a make, different movie. It, yeah, it feels like it's making itself up as it goes once they leave that hotel. Like, like, oh, okay, we have to come up with more. So then she meets her neighbors, but they're like post-Brexit he, racist, I guess, because we have to throw that in now for some reason. And but even that now, felt- and then uh, you know, and, and that's what I mean. It's just like every single element. Just but it felt tacked on. It felt it, it, that's what frustrated me. It's like, sure, I'm fine with a movie sort of making it up as it goes. My problem is it sort of betrayed everything, all of the themes that they had already established. It, 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 it yeah, it went counterintuitive to where the story naturally wants to go. Right, because you expect a movie, with a story, and they even sort of prep this in the dialogue. You expect a story about three wishes. There's going to be yeah. a monkey paw element that yeah. enters in at some point or, a, you know, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. And I'm expecting a much more there is, clever tie up to, well, to there what is, they there establish. No conflict in but this movie. But it just kind of peters is, out. It just kind of fades away. Yeah. And it's... A bummer because the first, like you said, first two thirds of this movie are great, mm-hmm. and they're they're so good that I'm, you know, I'll I will probably forgive the ending a little bit more down the road because the first chunk of it is working so well. Mm-hmm. But it, it, to me, this movie went from 
literally like an A plus to, you know, like a C plus. Oh, wow. Okay. It, it didn't drop that far for me. I think I settle on a B minus. Is yeah, where it, I, is where maybe it, that's a little more fair because or maybe like even I just said, like the, a B because um, it, it it does the first half is so good it's mm-hmm. so well done that it but it's so frustrating to fumble the ball that close to the finish line you know yeah yeah I don't know I I'm kind of perplexed by this movie I really enjoyed it while I was watching it I just it was done and I was like oh that's it i also what i i also really liked that it had this more interior contemplative tone to it you know because yeah. they're, they're sort of selling it as a comedy which i don't know why but when you see the trailers they make it look like like the shaquille o'neal kazam movie or something but I, I mean i got i got different vibes i got kind of larger fantasy maybe even action fantasy elements because they they seem to show a lot of these like flashback stories that right. he's telling but i mean i think they even use like funny movie guy voice like they're calling this aladdin for adults <laughs> like i i don't know and like this goofy music like every time i saw an ad for it I'd, i was like i don't know if i want to see this but every, the pedigree is so good i feel like i have to Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad that it's not the movie they're selling because I think the one they're, for the most part, is really actually smart and yeah, and, it's very intimate and philosophical. And, yeah, and it's asking tough questions about um, about fate and about mortality and about you know what is the purpose, the overall purpose of and there's of life. there's. These gorgeous lines of dialogue that mm-hmm. are, are very poetic and, and it feels like it's trying to evoke this sense of poetry. One of the and better for, one of the better Aegis Alba film performances I've seen. Which you think, yeah. you know, a movie where he has like elf ears for most of it and and or is in some sort You're of You're being dismissive, but I fucking loved his makeup. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, this is not yeah. the type of thing that you would expect him to be as good in as he is. But he gets a ton to do. And he's him and Tilda Swinton are just, you know, batting it oh, back and forth. their chemistry is great. Well, here's the thing, though. Their well, acting yeah, yeah. chemistry is great. They are great characters under one context. But when it tries to flip that context... That's when the chemistry is totally misguided. But I, I don't think, I don't think that's their chemistry. I think even then they still work together on screen. My, the problem is just the writing. It's just done. It checks out. Mm-hmm. Like if we feel like we're so in there with them in that moment, in that intensity of that conversation, there's something about it that's almost sort of. I mean, it's very literary, so it feels almost like something like Screwtape Diaries or um, Faustian or something like that. Even though, yeah, but not, then there's there's no there's no like devil kind of thing. But but that's a type of story that's being told as this like great what if scenario, and then the last third of the movie 
we're sort of floating above all of it and we're just it becomes very observational and distant yeah it 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 bummed me out i don't want to spoil things too much for mm-hmm. people who you know haven't seen it yet but but there the sort of the thing the action the wish that is made that is is a very obvious sort of demarcation point in the movie it just feels so antithetical to the character that had been established at that point. Right. For it to just come down to, well, I'm going to wish for this, and that's how it is now. Yeah, it almost feels it, like they sort of wrote themselves into a corner and didn't know how to write themselves out of it. But but they didn't. That's my frustration is, to me, the ending was so obvious. Mm. It, it just felt like they... Felt like they couldn't wrap it up in time or something. I don't know. I, 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 it's again the ending is like Aladdin, right? It's it's you make these wishes for these things that aren't maybe necessarily you think they're what you want, but they're not really what you want. And by the end of it, you realize that the ultimate wish is to wish for no wishes. You know what I mean? You know what would have maybe Every- worked? And now I'm just playing like script doctor but sure uh they could have even teased what they came up with in that final third and do a like 127 hours fake out moment where or or the green knight um where they, sure. we live yeah. out this fantasy the, in her head yeah and then you go back and to then, the hotel room. yeah go back to the hotel room when she realizes that is not the right answer and doesn't make any sense yeah and that's yeah, the end that would have that would have been a much better ending and it, it would have yeah my issue is that for a a story that's about stories if you don't have an ending to your story that's a pretty big problem yeah or at least a satisfactory one um, so yeah, I'm giving it a B minus purely because of the last third of the movie. I think the first two thirds of the movie are great. Um, yeah, and I actually that's... still recommend people see it. Dis- so I'll say that. to to me, go to a the first, Sure, the first two thirds of it are an A plus. the The finale is a C plus. So I'll average it out at a B. Okay. Yeah. Agreed. What's up, listeners? Force 5 is a show about movie-related top five lists, hosted by me, Blacklist screenwriter and ex-video store cinephile Jason Kleberg. I have a new guest on each week, and the guest gets to pick the topic. Past guests have included film directors, screenwriters, actors, critics, comedians, rappers, artists, and other podcasters. Love or hate our picks, you're guaranteed to walk away thinking, what would be on my list? Search Force 5 wherever you get your pods, or head to force5podcast.com. Let's move on now to the streaming homework, which is 2015's Bone Tomahawk. We watch this on Tubi. Every once in a while, this pops up on Shudder as well. So, uh, you know, if you have that service, check there. Um, this is... Yeah, I've, I've been waiting for this to go streaming for a while, though, because mm-hmm. uh, it's been kind of on my radar for a little bit now. Um, so it, it has been a while since it's been available to stream for free. So I would say um, when you when you see it pop up, you know, that's the time to take advantage of it if you want. Right. So this is uh, written and directed by S. Craig Zoller. 
This is a period Western post-Civil War, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, what's the, not, I can't, I can't think of the Reconstruction era? Yes, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and this has a huge cast, uh, Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, Richard Jenkins, uh, Lily Simmons, um, David Arquette is in there for a little bit, Fred uh, Malamed, Sid Haig. Sid Haig? Yeah. A little cameo. Uh, I was this. I think this might have been the last movie before he died. I think he was in Three from Hell before that, or after this. Oh, you're probably right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could be wrong about that. But, but this was near the end of his this career. This was towards sure. the end, yes. Basically, there's, a, there's like a small community who are attacked at different points by a mysterious intruder. It seems to be natives. Um, you know, we're seeing arrows. We're seeing that type of crude weaponry, a bone tomahawk, one might say. And uh, we have, you know, different folk who are involved in a search party after one man's wife, uh, Patrick Wilson's character, uh, Arthur, his wife, goes missing and is presumed kidnapped uh, by this this uh, band of outsiders. And Kurt Russell is the sheriff who's going to put together a team, including uh, Patrick Wilson, who's suffering from a leg infection that seems to only be getting worse and is slowing him down and slowing down the search party. Uh, Matthew Fox, who is uh, a very particular, um, deliberate person, a bit of a a bit of a fop, I would say, for this yeah, community. Yeah, I'd say you could call him a dandy. Yeah, at the time is probably the word they would have used. Yeah, but also He's very vain, very, but also uh, very intense mm-hmm. and uh, very forthcoming with his opinions. Uh, Richard Jenkins, who is the uh, second in command of the uh, of the jail that uh, Kurt Russell works at, he's he's uh, kind of an an old coot. Yeah, I would say it's you know his best years are behind him. He's he's yeah. kind of a a bit of a, a doofus. Yeah, has no filter. Says whatever. He's a little is on his scatterbrained. Mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, you know becomes a rescue mission for the most part um, with a bit of a thriller horror edge to it. Specifically, if I were to pitch this, and I'm sure this these films came up in several pitch meetings, this is a little the searchers or. This is a lot. The searchers meets a little hills have eyes. I I would say it's a lot of both of those movies. I so when I when this first popped up on my radar, I I knew it was you know it had a lot of horror elements. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't prepared for how much of a western it was going to be. Agreed. Uh, In fact, uh, other than the other than the feral cannibal element of it which i don't think is a spoiler to say that that's you know what we're dealing with here no yeah i mean there there you know there's a cold open with you know this i mean this movie's lean and mean and brutal as hell right um other than that element of it which is i would say sparing 
given that that is yeah. an element of it. That's uh, not as much of a large part of it is a very traditional rescue mission searcher style mm-hmm. Western. Yeah, it, it's 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 very Western until the point where it's like, oh, yeah, they they did not know what they were getting into. And, you know, a lot of I think a lot of what the horror comes from is a lot of the violence is played for realism, you know, like, yeah. Back in the day, if you got your leg broken and you got an infection, that was fucking it for you. Like, you were, they didn't have antibiotics. You know what I mean? Right. So, a lot of that, I think the horror comes from just the, you know, these people that are so brutal and so violent and the violence is so quick. These scenes aren't these long choreographed fight action sequences. They're not these long choreographed chase scenes. It is... Oh, somebody pops up and gets a fucking tomahawk to the face, and that's it. You know, yeah. It 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 um, it sort of soaks in the gratuity and the yeah. the gore a little bit more towards the third act, and yeah. Uh, yeah. that's when it turns up that Wes Craven dial a few more notches. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, it's it's it's. You could read this as the same as any other kind of Western where the threat is just yeah, an unknown uh, amount of, you know, brutal savages. I'm putting that in several air quotes. Um, well, yeah, and and the movie does that as well. Like, I, I do want to I, – I think it's important to point that out that this isn't just like – uh, you know, a tribe of, of Native Americans. This is a, a specific group – of like neolithic cave dwellers that that are you know that are primitive beyond how native americans are typically portrayed yeah, and, and there is in feral. fact a native yeah and there is a, a native american character that points that out this isn't this isn't a native tribe it is it, it these are monsters lurking in the hills yes in fact i remember when i saw a documentary or something with Wes Craven talking about how he came up with Hills Have Eyes. He read a story about hill cannibals who were attacking um, people in the Old West. And this could have been based on that very same story. Sure. I would be very surprised if it wasn't, in fact, because it seems to follow that logic. Um, Pretty specific. Yes. Although I think that the, uh, the, the, the director here is very interested in uh, making do on the Western elements. Um, I'll say oh, sure. sometimes some mix, mixed results. I think he's a little bit yes. better at the horror stuff than he is at the Western stuff. He seems more comfortable with it anyway. And there's – when the movie kind of decides to go more, you know, gore slash exploitation, it's kind of working to the lo- mo- I mean, in the movie's yeah, there, favor. There are some – Pretty fucking shocking stuff in here. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and pretty, yeah, horrific, intentionally horrific stuff. Uh, and because I do think the Western stuff maybe stretches out a little longer than it maybe needed to. I think you could have shaved five minutes here or there of Patrick struggling with his leg kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Um, which is important to the story, absolutely. But or even you know just what I mean? pepper like, in the search party with some more horror elements every now and then to to just pick up the pace a little bit because here's the deal. The movie's shot on digital. It's very clearly shot on digital. There's a lot mm. of intentional uh, handheld camera work. Um, sometimes a shot selection, specifically for the like conversations, are a little amateurish feeling. Like there's there's elements of where I'm like, these actors, as good as they are, I guarantee there has to be a take better than the one we just got. I I don't know about that. I I I think Richard Jenkins. I, I, I mean, I think I, this is one of Richard Jenkins' worst performances. I th- oh, I disagree. I, 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 I think his character choices were really broad, and he's he's doing more of a voice than he needs to do for that kind of character. I I don't think he comes off great in this movie. I think Patrick Wilson's fine for what he's there to do. Uh, Kurt Russell is made a whole career of basically doing John Wayne, and he he does it really well. Um, I I, I would say he does it better than John Wayne. Uh, <laughs> he has an inherent warmth about him. Uh, I think yeah. that I think especially in this kind of role, he's he's it's kind of a greatest hits. For him, right? Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's he's reliably doing what we know he can reliably do. I think the star performance here is Matthew Fox, actually. I think he st- steals every scene he's in. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was not going to let you talk down to my boy Matthew Fox <laughs> in the best thing I've ever seen him do. <laughs> no, yeah, there's um, a, you can tell he maybe needs this movie more than everybody else in the cast. Yeah, and there, there was a post-lost hunger for, like, I want to do something. I'm going to do a character, yeah. and I want it to be problematic and fucked up, but interesting, mm-hmm. and uh, in all the, the, the right ways to do a, a character like this. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, yes, you can't take your eyes off of him. He's great. Yeah, he holds together some scenes that I think aren't great. Like, there's there's some scenes that are inherently kind of boring. Other than he's very good in them. I I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, overall, I would say you could definitely shave 20 minutes off this movie and not miss it yeah, at all. Yeah, that was, that was my big problem with it as well, is, is the beginning is so good and the ending is so good, but there's kind of a long stretch in the middle where it feels like... It's a little padded. It's a little fluffy. Yeah, you know, and that, that that's the stuff where I think a more seasoned, Western-minded director who would know how to use the scenery to their advantage, how to, yeah. you know, sometimes the shot selections are just so basic, um, and they don't they don't have to be. Um, yeah, there, there's a couple time, there's a couple points in this section too, where I remember like the shots aren't great. Like there, mm-hmm. there, 
there was one in particular point where they were like kind of gathering their horses around like a watering hole that there was a lot of these like shadows from trees. And I don't normally notice that kind of thing Mm -hmm. to the point where I was like, ooh, if I'm noticing this, this is a problem. You know, when they're riding around in the desert or whatever, it's fine. A lot of that is is decent you know we know they're out in the wilderness right um but it's not beautiful the way that john ford could shoot it you know right or even the way that like say jane campion did recently in the power of the dog power of the dog or you know which is a movie where a lot less is fucking happening i i think this director uh to his credit works really well in small spaces like, I think the yeah. scenes in the bar are shot really well, and the scenes in the cave at the end are, are done really to great effect. And, and again, the, these scenes of violence are so quick and brutal and, and real feeling that I, I, I think you put your finger right on the problem with this movie is it doesn't have that sense of Western expanse. It doesn't have that sense of looming environment. Right. It's it, there's, there's something about it that feels a little televisual in its scope. Yeah, um, I can see that. And it might have to do with the fact that they're using a cheaper form of digital or he, him and his DP just haven't quite dialed in a visual style. Um, it's not bad it's like it's not like so bad that it's distracting but it's i can't no, I help actually but think, think of this movie under slightly more secure hands and just upping think all of those the, elements a little bit more sure i but i think it's it's sort of the opposite of bad i think it's to me this is like you know i i don't know how many i don't think this director has a lot of movies under his belt no, he's done, a lot, me, of, this he's is done like, a lot of B-movies. Uh, uh, okay, it's I'm looking at his filmography. And he's done like three movies. Right. Right? Some shorts. Uh, and, and, yeah. And this was like his his first his first real movie, right. as, as far as IMDb has it. So to me, this is like, the, this feels like something that could have been sort of like a Fangoria- direct to streaming thing mm-hmm. but the director had a little bit more to do with it and a little more bit more to tell to me this is i don't know i i thought it showed a lot of potential no yeah i i i agree with that i would i would be interested to see where this director keeps going um if he ever gets a project of this size or bigger again uh i overall enjoyed it yeah i think for me it there's just there's a that stretch in the middle during the search party stuff where it, the tension kind of sags and if I mean if we, if we got feral cannibals living in the hills like let's let's trot those guys out a little bit more guy I uh, yeah I agree with you I agree with you there especially when the first chunk of the movie that tension and that sense of dread is very well done I think mm-hmm. I think that cold open goes a long way uh, to telling you like what this movie's gonna be like, mm-hmm. and then you know when they when these cannibals like invade the town, 
Uh, I think we needed more of that. I think we needed more. I agree because it, it gets to this point where like, we know they're heading towards some bad shit, but we needed a little bit more of that in between. I still, for all this movie's flaws, what I got was, was still exciting because to me it's like, yeah, this is a, a uh, not a seasoned filmmaker. There's something very raw to this, mm-hmm. but in that rawness, I, I think they found a lot of cool stuff and, and I think, uh, I think there's a lot of moments of letting these sort of characters breathe that leads to these interesting things that you wouldn't get in, in a more polished production. And to me, that was exciting. Like at its core, this, this is a character piece. This does want, this is interested in these characters mm-hmm. and, and enough to where I care when they live or die. And I think that's exciting. And especially in in horror as a genre, it's very easy to overindulge in the gore and the, the violence. And this is selective enough that I can tell there is there is a talent behind it. I agree. I'd say if you're a fan of uh, horror films, if you're a fan of Westerns, um, maybe especially if you're a fan of Westerns, or you just like these actors, there's lots of different entry points into getting into this. But it's not perfect by any means. Yeah, there's still there's still a B-movie quality to it. And some people might actually be attracted to that. That might be what they find interesting about it. Well, think about this. Any earlier- this is the same year that Kurt Russell appeared in The Hateful Eight. You can tell by the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think honestly this movie isn't that dissimilar to the Hateful Eight. A, f- uh, a fun double feature. I could I definitely could see that playing at the Beverly. Absolutely. I I, I mean the Hateful Eight is definitely shot better, uh, especially for those sort of you know long sprawling sort of western things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it very brutal. Uh, very and the brutality is contained in these weird, interesting ways. Yeah, there's sort of um, genre blends, and uh, yeah. So yeah. I, 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 to me, that does it does not surprise me that this came out the same year. I think, it, I think it. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I, I think it. There's something about the way this movie was shot and the budget with which it was shot that. I don't think it, this would have, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think this movie would have been as interesting had it been, you know, a, a direct to streamer release. And I don't think it would have been as interesting had it been, uh, you know, a, a late 90s indie release. Like, I, I think it, there's something very unique about the time period it was, it, it, that it came out that could have only existed with these idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies when it came out i i I think nowadays it it probably would have been too self-indulgent if it had like a netflix budget Mm. and before that it would have you know probably been chopped to pieces as a studio thing where they wanted it to be way too much one genre more than the other i i think there's something very interesting about this movie yeah if it came out in like 97 or 98 it would have turned into the relic 
Yeah, or just a straight Western and and dialed down the, the Cannibal Hill people element. I don't know. I think there's something cool about that. All right. Well, the next streaming homework we're going to do is from Amazon Prime, the film I Want You Back, a rom-com, an uh, indie rom-com that came out earlier this year in February. And I've heard some some stuff about it. I've heard some stuff. Uh, okay. And All right. I'm, I'm... Yeah, we usually don't do movies yeah. that are this new for for streaming homework, but, you know, we are kind of approaching the end of the year, and I want to make sure we get this one under our belts. All right. So Cool. So we'll be doing that, and if anybody has anything to say about anything we've talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com or follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whichever podcast app you use to listen to us, uh, specifically iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts. Uh, But we're on plenty other podcatchers as well. Uh, You can read the reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. And that should take you to the page where they're archived. Um, You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at uh, MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. My Twitter suspension is almost over. (laughs) It will be over by the time this is released. Uh, You can also follow me on Instagram uh, at Sticky Note Aesthetic, which I haven't updated in a long time, but whatever. Uh, You can also follow Mockingbird Improv on Instagram and on Facebook, and uh, I I perform there regularly. Uh, If you're interested in seeing me perform live improv comedy, come check out a show. All right. And, you know, I haven't said this in a while, but a lot of our... uh pod family out there have been putting out new content so i'd like to direct people to a few of their shows um you know people that we've collaborated with in the past who've been on our show or we've been on theirs uh rod and denise uh they've been doing taco tuesday talk as in t-a-l-k dash o dash tuesday um i believe there's several podcasts with that name so but theirs has a blue logo with a drawing of a taco um they've been doing that for a while but i think they've relaunched the listening party which was the original podcast that they were doing they're going to be doing uh one episode per month now it sounds like but uh they just released an episode of that and that's very exciting i was a big fan of that show it's how a lot of us got to know each other um on and offline and uh Patrick, who's been on our show, he was on our Bat Stravaganza episode. Um, he and his podcasting partner uh, just released the first few episodes of their second season of the Consume Us Pod, and uh, you know they talk talk a lot about several different topics. I think the last one they did was on werewolves, so uh, check that out as well. 
Nice. Werewolves. And that is the episode. All right.